everyone, it's Thomas Newman, and we're here on Talking Force. Welcome to the lab. Today we have a very special guest, um, and you know I'm super excited to talk about this. This is uh, going to be not only important for coaches, um, but for parents and for athletes. We're here with Dr. Dodic today, and we're going to talk about concussions. Now, if you're in the field and you know you've done any kind of um, training, you're going to see, uh, concussions. It's a fact it happens. Unfortunately, it's a side effect of any time that we have collisions, but also, um, to some of our tactical teams that may be listening to this, trying to get a better understanding. I think right now we're probably more hypervigilant, uh, and aware of this, uh, kind of enigma that we call brain trauma. But if you ask the average person, what is it? They don't really know. So what we did is we went out today, got Dr. Dodek, and he's going to give us a real deep dive on all things brain, all things recovery, and talk about some of the stuff he's been working on to try to help in the repair process and to try to help really give people, you know, some sort of footing um, in how to go about the recovery process if someone was to go about having a concussion. And as we go back into playing full season sports this fall, I thought this was a very, very important conversation. So I hope you all enjoy. Dr. Dota, thank you so much for joining us. Thomas, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Now, can you tell everybody just a little bit about your background, just kind of a, a brief overview and uh, kind of how we got to where we are today? Well, I'm a neurologist, Thomas. I'm a professor of neurology at the Mayo Clinic, and I started my training in neurology back in 1990, actually. And um, much of that was at the uh, Mayo Clinic. Some of it was at the University of Toronto. But I've been on faculty now at the Mayo Clinic since 1996, so the last 25 years. And since about 1995, when I was doing my fellowship training, um, I was involved in particularly the care of um, patients with concussion, uh, as well as other types of traumatic brain injuries, such as stroke, and um, also in people who were experiencing severe intractable headache disorders like migraine and other types of craniofacial pain. So that's where I, I placed my focus during my training. And I've been looking after all of those patients in all of those areas since, since about 1996, since I've been on staff at Mayo Clinic. Much of my research has been in each of those areas as well, especially headache and craniofacial pain, as well as in concussion and um, cerebral vascular disease and stroke. Why brains? Why neurology? If you had the opportunity, you went through the whole med school stuff and- Ah, uh, we're going there. way back now. That's good. Yeah. Well, well, you know, I why? see- <laughs> I seek challenges and the brain is by far not only the most complex organ in the body, but it's the most complex structure in the universe with, you know, hundred billion cells and each of which make 10,000 connections to 10,000 other cells and communicate through this complex electrical and chemical signaling with more than 16 neurotransmitters. I mean, there's nothing in the universe more complex and, and more difficult to understand. So for me, it was a challenge. Second, it was the essence of, of what makes us human is the, is the brain. And third, when I entered the field, <clears throat> as other physicians would say, for neurologists, it was all about diagnose and adios, since we deal with incurable and untreatable diseases. And as a young doctor, uh, the brain diseases, which actually affect one in three individuals across the planet, even here in the United States, that to me was wholly unacceptable, that we had so much mass suffering uh, and disease that stole the essence of who we are as, as humans, particularly neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease. And so what greater cause could I commit myself to than ensuring that at the end of my career, this was no longer the case and that perhaps I could in some small way contribute 
um, to, to improving the situation for patients with neurological disease. So that's, that's kind of what motivated to me. It was the challenge. It was the complexity. It was the lack of treatments um, and the ability to make hopefully a meaningful impact in those areas. So incredible is the brain is so powerful, so, so vital to who we are, to our consciousness, to our subconsciousness, you know, all these incredible things that happen automatically from birth. You don't have to think about to breathe. You don't have to think about, you know, all these different functions. Um, but yet it's, it's matched with such, um, taboo. It's almost, you know, when you talk about the brain, you would think that it would be rejoiced and, you know, it would be, you know, at the forefront of any kind of, um, especially in performance, um, peak performance, that that would be the focal point, but it's almost now, uh, and we've seen this with some of our guys coming back from the war admittance that you're having a hard time admittance that you're having a headache or that just, I don't know, things aren't going right. Um, it's, it's just mired in this kind of <clears throat> weird, uh, I don't even, I don't even know the correct word for it, but, um, I think it's stigma, Thomas. Yeah. These diseases have been so stigmatized and, um, you know, I said that one in three people suffer from a neurological disease. That's not even including mental health issues and chronic pain, which I see as neurological diseases as well, since, an, since it's an alteration in brain function or structure. So we're talking about an awful lot of people. But I think as you're seeing right now through social media and just through uh, conversations that are taking place, it's not such taboo anymore or stigma to talk about mental health. Uh, or to talk about the brain and to talk about brain health. I mean, we talked about heart health for the last half century. And only now are we starting to talk about brain health and how can we optimize brain health and how can we protect the brain, um, whether you're participating in a collision or contact sport or not, just for you or I. Um, well, I should say me who, you know, I'm not engaged in, in sport like I used to be, but how can I protect my health as, a, as someone in the mid to late 50s um, I want, you know, we all want to, to live as long as possible, but we want our health span to equal our lifespan. So we want as rich and full of life as, as, as humanly possible. So we're talking about brain health now in a way that we never talked about before. Yeah, people talk about the brain as, you know, it is injured. It is not injured. But as you point out, I think there's been enough research coming out to, you know, how does your diet affect your brain? How does your training, how does physical activity affect yeah. the brain? And And all of it being that, you know, doing, having a plan or attempting to optimize. I like that word um, because a lot of people live suboptimally for many, many decades. I, I can tell yeah. you having personally worked with clients that maybe suffer from thyroid uh, condition, you know, they don't think about that gland, you know, potentially being the reason why they can't get out of bed every morning. And so they say that this is the, you know, this is my eternal life that I'm stuck with it. And with a few, I don't know, a few analyses and, and a couple uh you know, blood work samples, you know, you're able to make some pretty big modifications. Um, so the interconnectivity, both to the brain, to the being and the consciousness um, is something that I hope continues to get clearer and clearer um, with what is good, what is not good. And, and when you see this in your, in your office, what, what is your typical day? Like, are you at the forefront of performance? Is it more research? Um, what, what does that look like for someone who maybe doesn't know kind of the day-to-day -day operations of a neurologist? Well, of course, it, it differs depending on um, where you tend to focus your efforts. So for me, uh, I tend to be a, a three-shield sort of practitioner. And by that, I mean, uh, I focus my efforts both in practice, so I take care of patients. Research is the second shield. So I've done research since, since I finished my, my, even before I finished my residency. So I'm, I'm tenacious and I have a sustained research program. And I'm also involved in education. You know, I founded the Neurology Residency Program at the Mayo Clinic 
here in Arizona. I, I founded the uh, fellowship, headache, headache migraine fellowship program. Um, I founded the concussion center here. So, you know, I'm also involved uh, heavily in education as well. Well, you certainly have a, a full plate when it talks about people talk about their day-to-day job. That's, that's pretty incredible. And, and, you know, on top of all that, I know you didn't, you didn't mention it there, but you've been working on this kind of small project here for the last five years um, to kind of take a lot of that research, a lot of that education um, to the public. What, can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff you've been working on with this, with this uh, new product that you've, uh, I guess, uh, co-sponsored and you guys are coming out with Thorn? Could you talk a little yeah. bit about that? So in the concussion area, I've kind of focused my efforts both in the, in the laboratory with an animal model for traumatic brain injury. Um, as well as in the clinic through the development and refinement of diagnostics. Um, so to come up with more precise ways of diagnosing concussion, coming up with more precise ways of prognosticating what's going to happen to that individual and what type, what type of care they may need and whether they should return to play and how quickly they should return to play, all the way to the other end of the spectrum where I'm involved in research looking at trying to discover a biomarker for chronic traumatic encephalopathy which is sort of the end of the spectrum where people, boxers, football players, after repetitive head injuries and after repetitive concussions suffer from this, you know, terrible neurodegenerative disease. So uh, all the way from youth athlete uh, research programs, all the way to the end to chronic traumatic encephalopathy. But what really disturbed me, Thomas, um, because I've seen people young and old whose lives have been absolutely destroyed by traumatic brain injury, like completely destroyed. Um, and even taken their lives. And what what really bothered me was the fact that we sit back, we know some of the pathological cascades that are triggered in the brain after a traumatic brain injury. And yet we don't target those, that injury. We simply sit back, um, do our diagnostics, monitor the course uh, of, of the condition and hope that that individual recovers completely, which fortunately many times that is the case, But all too often, we know what the long-term sequelae could be for an unacceptable proportion of those people. And so with stroke, of course, time is brain, right? And whether you're having a heart attack or a stroke, there's an injury to an organ. For stroke, it's an injury to the brain. And we know that the quicker you intervene, the better the outcome, the more brain you preserve. And why should that be any different for a traumatic brain injury in the form of a concussion? It isn't. And so, you know, The concussion itself, the impact itself is simply the beginning. It's not the end. It's the, it's just simply the end of the the beginning. And so I kind of liken it sometimes to lighting a match and starting a fire. The impact is the match that you drop in the forest. The fire is what occurs after the match has long since extinguished itself. And so essentially there's a a fire in the brain. Um, that occurs after the impact that may persist for hours, days, weeks, months, years, or indefinitely. I mean, some of the individuals with chronic traumatic encephalopathy who are in their sixth and seventh decade of life who come to autopsy and we examine the brain, we see still signs of inflammation. And how else can you account for the fact that these individuals develop these dementia or mental health issues after their last impact. So there's something happening in the brain that's triggered by these impacts that continues on and leads to these progressive neurological conditions. And so why, when we know what's happening, why don't we try to disrupt that? 
And looking at the pipeline right now where we are with the science, there's very few individuals and very few groups doing work on therapeutics. It's still focused on diagnostics and not on therapeutics. So the pipeline, I'm here to tell you, looks really dry. Hmm. And if I, if I were to sit back and wait for a therapeutic to come along that targets the mechanisms that we know exist in traumatic brain injury, I'll be retired. I'll be long retired before that happens. So I thought, okay, let's step back a second. Do we know what's happening in the brain? Yeah, we do. We do know what's happening in the brain. Do we have materials, compounds, molecules developed that can disrupt these cascades? Yes, we do. Is there science and research that proves that, that shows that? Yes, there is. Are these safe? Yes, they are. Are they genuinely well tolerated? Yes, they are. Are people taking them now? Yes, they are. Well, what if we combined all of them together and hit all of these different cascades at multiple different targets? What would happen? That's what we did. So we developed this combination, you know, 13 ingredient supplement, if you will, or nutritional support for brain health that specifically targets the pathological cascades that are triggered in the brain after an injury but not just after an injury, they trigger these cascades that could be initiated even in normal people. So neuroinflammation or inflammation in the brain is an area of research that's been prioritized by everybody from the American Brain Foundation to the National Institutes of Health. Why? Because neuroinflammation cuts across many different neurological diseases from Alzheimer's disease to epilepsy, to multiple sclerosis, to chronic traumatic encephalopathy, to traumatic brain injury, and I could go on. So if we're gonna cure many by curing one, why not target neuroinflammation, which you don't have to have a concussion or traumatic brain injury to experience. And so, um, so these, this, this nutritional support supplement, I believe not only targets these cascades and could be helpful to individuals, athletes who are participating in collision contact sport, but also, I take it every day. My family takes it every day. Why do we take a multivitamin every day? Many of us. I mean, 75% of Americans take supplements. Why is that? Why do they do that? They do it because they're trying to be proactive about their health. And so I'm, I'm trying to be proactive about my brain health as I sit here as a 58-year-old man, um, knowing that knowing what I know and knowing what I know comes with age, why am I not going to be proactive by taking something that at least um, until we have rigorous placebo-controlled trials of a combination of products, which again, I'll be long retired before that ever happens, I'm going to be proactive and take something that's safe where I think I'm optimizing brain health. Yeah, I couldn't believe when, you know, as you're talking there, I mean, you just dropped so many nuggets, you know, as strength and conditioning or sports performance, we're constantly seeking optimization and just these areas that, you know, we talk about dependent variables and independent variables and, you know, interdependent variables and just stuff that just so it just gets overlooked. And I think for us in the last five years, go five, go 10, go 20 years, <clears throat> there's been a quantum leap in what we now know. And we still only know 1%, you know, if we, you know, if we're being uh, aggressive with how the brain works, how the body works, but seems like there's some low hanging fruit here. And again, I, I might need to have you back on here to talk about some of those other uh, stuff, maybe for the coaches uh, talk about, cause I know certainly um, that fatigue, that exhaustion and just kind of high performers experience 
Uh, you know, you got me thinking about a whole bunch of other questions, but I, w- I want to really kind of dive into concussions because, I mean, that's the most obvious, you know, as we're here in the summer, we're gearing up for fall camp um, for football. We're gearing up for a lot of sports here in the United States and then globally to some of our customers around the world. Let's just say in general, um, the pandemic is headed in the right direction where we're going to now see increased activity in sports and a lot more movement. Um so we're going to probably see some more concussions here. Um, and I want to really make sure that anybody that takes the time to listen to this today um, gets at least pointed in the right direction on what they are and what they're not. So as a father myself, um, you know, I want to know uh, as, a, as a coach, I want to know. And then more importantly, if there's an athlete out there that, you know, maybe is in an area where they don't necessarily have the best medical care or they don't have someone who can advocate for them, they should be able to listen to this and at least point themselves in the right direction. So can you just help me out? Just go, you know, as deep as you need to on when we talk concussion, we watch it on the field. Let's just go sports. Let's go contact. Someone gets hit in the head. What happens? And, and is it, is it a concussion? Is it a binary you're rocked or you're not, or are there degrees? And then kind of at each level of that degree, what does it look like and what's going on? I love the question, Thomas. All right, let's go. So you know, the World Health Organization estimates that about 60 million concussions occur annually, of which about 50 million are mild traumatic brain injuries or what we refer to as concussions. That's likely a gross underestimate because as you and I have discussed before, a lot of people don't know they've had a concussion. They're either experiencing symptoms, but they don't think they have a concussion because they haven't been knocked out, or they're not even experiencing symptoms, but they've had a concussion. So a concussion really is an alteration in the function and probably structure of the brain that gives rise to symptoms, headache, nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and sound and dizziness and vertigo and trouble concentrating and disturbed sleep and confusion and amnesia and loss of memory, et cetera, et cetera. Or there are no symptoms. So you've had a head impact, 40 Gs, you have no symptoms, you didn't even see stars or lights, and yet, these pathological cascades that are triggered in the brain after concussion are also triggered after a subconcussive impact. So we're now starting to realize that concussion is just the tip of the iceberg about the long-term devastating effects of traumatic hits to the head that occur from subconcussive impacts because it's the same biology and it's the same damage that's occurring in the brain. And so, for example, if you are a high school football player, you may take, depending on your position, 250 to 500 hits to the head that that would measure above 20 Gs each and every season. Now, you may go through an entire season, and most athletes do, without a single concussion. And let's say they're not trying to hide the symptoms. They just haven't had any concussions or symptoms. But yet, midway through a season, we can do whatever testing you want, cognitive testing, functional MRI scans, to show that the brain has changed. It looks different now than it did preseason. Why? Because these impacts matter. So we talk a lot about concussion, but we're starting to emphasize now and realize the importance of sub-concussive impacts and the devastating effect that they can have. Um, so that, so that's just a little bit about concussion and sub-concussive impacts. Now let's talk about what happens in the brain. Immediately, a number of things happen and I'll There's about five things that happen that lead to damage. One is, well, first of all, at the time of the impact, 
there's kind of a stretching and a shearing of delicate nerve fibers in the brain. And as I remember, I said, there are a hundred billion cells, each of which make connections to 10,000 others. So those delicate strands, axons, if you will, and dendrites are stretched and sheared. So that's a structural injury that occurs at the time of impact. That's called the primary injury. However, and we don't talk about this, there's a secondary injury that occurs. And so there are pathological reactions in the brain that are triggered as a result of that primary injury. Because if you tore your cruciate ligament or your ACL, right? What's gonna happen? Initially, nothing, you're gonna feel pain, but then you're gonna get swelling and redness and inflammation, right? So that's the secondary injury that occurs. It also occurs in the brain, just like it does in your knee joint. And so what happens is that these secondary injury reactions, which are well understood, by the way, occur. And this is what happens. You get an uncontrolled entry into a cell of ions. You know, ions are like potassium and calcium and sodium. And so what happens is sodium and calcium rush into the cell. And what does it pull with it? When you pull salt into a cell, you pull water into a cell. Cells don't like that, right? When you pull calcium into a cell and too much of it, and it's unregulated, that's toxic to the cell. So a number of different other cascades are then triggered by that flow of calcium into a cell. Calcium-mediated toxicity. Let me go back and say that the, the, the entry of ions into and out of the cell is so tightly regulated. It's one of those tightly regulated functions in the human body. When that becomes unregulated, cells suffer. So a lot of entry of calcium and water into the cell. And then just like there's too much stuff coming in, there's too much stuff going out. What goes out? Neurotransmitters, particularly glutamate. So glutamate is the most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. It's really important for a lot of neurological functions. However, too much of a good thing is not good. And when you have excessive glutamate released, it causes what we call excito because it's an excitatory transmitter. It excites other neurons, toxicity, so excitotoxicity. So you have calcium and water rushing in, you have glutamate rushing out. The next thing that occurs is all that calcium coming in poisons the mitochondria. What are mitochondria? One of the most important organelles or structures inside of a cell that really is the cell's battery. It's the energy production factory. Without it, you can't survive. Um, so it provides the energy that's important to drive the cellular machinery. And so the mitochondria become sick and that leads to the production of what we call oxygen-free radicals and what we, what's termed oxidative stress because the mitochondria is responsible for what we call oxidative phosphorylation, which drives the production of energy. And when there's stress on the mitochondria, there's oxidative stress and lots of toxic macromolecules are produced as a result of that, which damages the cell and the membrane of the cells and the fat that sits in the membrane. So that the cyto, the, the architectural integrity of the cell is kind of damaged. The final thing that occurs and occurs Experimentally, when you look at this, it occurs immediately, and that's inflammation. Why? Well, because inflammation can be protective, right? If you cut yourself, you'll see cells of inflammation rush to that to fight off any organisms. It's sort of a protective mechanism. 
But when inflammation goes awry or goes amok, which it does in this case, both in the covering of the brain as well as in the brain itself, it leads to damage and degeneration of cells. And the worst thing that happens <clears throat> is <clears throat> the cells that die as a result of impact are dead, right? There's no bringing those back. But when you get inflammation that occurs and it persists for days, weeks, months, or years, that then starts to damage other healthy brain. And that's not good. And so, so those are the things that happen immediately after a concussion and in the days, weeks, months afterward. These are the, this is the secondary injury that I refer to. Now, if we know all of that, well, is there any way to disrupt that? And is there a way to disrupt it early? Because there was a placebo-controlled trial with one of the ingredients in Cinequel that we'll talk about that was studied in soldiers in Afghanistan. And they gave it to them on the battlefield. So they were exposed to an improvised explosive device. They were concussed. And they were all given this single ingredient. And then they were look, looked at seven days later to see how many had symptoms and how many did not have symptoms. And it was very clear that A, the product worked, but B, it worked better if you gave it early, right? Because you mitigate the damage caused by all of these cascades that are triggered. So the earlier you give it, the better. The earlier you put out a fire, the less likely it is to spread and cause you know, a lot of damage. So it's pretty simple. A uh, pretty simple concept, actually. Well, that was a lot to take in as a parent. I'm sitting there listening and I'm hearing these things. And I think about, you know, you mentioned 20 Gs. Um, what are the ranges of that? Because again, what do I say? I don't know Gs. Is that a light tap in the middle of uh, interior? Is that like getting absolutely rocked? What, what we got to give a little bit of perspective. Context. We go to watch. Yeah, yeah. As we go watch practice or we go think about that. I know one of the things that we did a great job, I know the NFL did as well, is making sure you don't hit the ground because actually we uh, we were able to use a product that could measure um, some of these traumas and forces. And some of the highest numbers we saw were when you hit the ground. So I know the Ivy League has led the way um, with making sure you stand up. And again, teaching, especially, uh, especially football um, on your feet. Because um, that was a really easy way to make it safe. Because again, you know, some of these implications are, you know, if 20 G's is when I sneeze, well, that's not great. But what does it take to do that? And then kind of what are the ranges? And you also mentioned there, you alluded a little bit to um, the IED blasts. How are those measured um, in, as far as the, the G's or the forces? Because again, I think when most people um, in the athletic community think of concussions, they think of striking and trauma. But obviously, um, you know, say even on a shockwave, nothing actually hits you uh, physically, kinetically, but actually in reality, those blasts, they add up too as well. So if you could just, you know, set the picture for that a little bit, that'd be super helpful. Yeah. So, you know, if you ran your car into a brick wall going uh, 40 miles an hour, um, you're likely to sustain an impact of anywhere between 60 and hundred G's. So, you know, a hard slap to the face, for example, could initiate uh, an impact of about 20 G's, right? So, uh, a lot of hits to the head, helmet to helmet hits to the head, uniformly usually measure above 20 Gs. And it can go up to, you know, 200 Gs, right? Oftentimes, if you have a hit that is above 80 to 100 Gs, it's probably going to lead to symptoms. Having said that, you can have someone with a hit that's 25 Gs lead to symptoms and someone with another hit of 120 Gs not lead to symptoms. So when it, when it comes to G-forces, 
there's a lot of built-in heterogeneity between individuals and a lot of differences in resilience. So the hit, the impact that you could withstand without producing symptoms may be much different than me. Yeah. And that's that area where you talked a little bit before about, you know, the stigma as an athlete, as a parent, as a coach, and you look at, you know, and, and I can think of individuals that have been absolutely rocked and they get up and they're fine. I've seen other people, you know, take a glancing blow and, you know, they're out, you know, for the season or for months. How, how, how do you reckon people approach this issue of trying to figure out diagnostically other than I do think this is an important time to point out, there should be a separation, you know, of church and state between medical and athletics. And, you know, that's just because again, at the end of the day, that's, what's going to be best for the athletes, but just how do you know someone's, you know, that we can measure HOMA scores for insulin sensitivity. We can look at HbA1c markers for sugar. Where, where's the research towards understanding someone's ability to handle those loads? And again, even if they can handle a hit, are they still going to be sustaining uh, damage to the brain that will just catch up with them later on? I think some of the NFL players, they go seasons and seasons and years and years fine. Uh, and then they're not fine. So could you just kind of unpack that a little bit about that um, resilience that sounds yeah. like it's largely genetic and kind of how to go about thinking that, you know, about that as a parent or as a coach? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, as someone who participated in sport and who has had a few concussions, you know, I played hockey because I'm from Canada and I played hockey up to the junior ranks. So, you know, I, and you know, you can't, you can see me, but you can't actually see how small I am. I'm about five, 750 pounds. Um, so you can imagine me playing junior hockey, competing against, you know, six, three guys, 240, 250. I didn't stand much of a chance. So obviously I've had my bell rung a few times and, I, and as a parent, uh, I care as well because I had two kids, both of whom had participated in sport and continue to participate in sport. So it is really important. The issue is, like you say, NFL players playing for 15, 20 years, 10 years, whatever, sustain many hits to the head. And as I talked about, these subconcussive hits that don't rise to the level of producing symptoms do have an impact over time. Pardon the pun, but they, they, they have a measurable effect over time. So whether I'm more resilient and I can take a hit that you can't, that doesn't give rise to symptoms, doesn't mean that my brain has gotten off scot-free right? Because if these cascades are triggered by a 40G hit, even though they don't cause symptoms, um, obviously these cascades have been triggered and there's going to be some damage that may persist and that may accumulate over time the more I'm impacted. From, a, from the standpoint of why you're able to take a 100G hit and I'm able to only take a 40G hit without producing symptoms, that comes down probably to genetics. It comes down to brain architecture like, for example, women, females, are more susceptible to concussion than males. We know that. And their recovery is longer. And the likelihood of post-concussion symptoms is higher. And we've struggled for a long time understanding why that is. We made things up, didn't make things up, but we speculated that maybe it's due to their smaller neck size, right? So the head is sitting on a... a, a um, a bigger neck in a man, so it's not whipped around as much, so there are not as many, the brain isn't sort of sloshing around as much in a, in a male skull as it is in a female skull because the neck is smaller, so um, the neck and the head moves and the brain moves around more. We talk about perhaps it's the effect of estrogen on the brain. What it comes down to probably is the architecture of the brain. So female brains 
have much, much smaller axons. Remember those, those fine-like threads? And so they're more susceptible to shearing and damage, perhaps, than, and that's been shown. In animals, at least, that's been shown. So whether you take a pig or some other type of animal and compare female to male with the same level of force, the damage in the female brain is much greater than the damage in the male brain. So it has to do with sex or gender as well. And then it probably has to do with, um, at a molecular level, <clears throat> maybe I release more glutamate than you do, or maybe my NMDA receptors, to which, which is the target of glutamate, are much more susceptible to this, to activation. So I produce more excitotoxic damage, more injury, and therefore more symptoms than you do. So it is so complicated. We've got 60 neurotransmitters in a, in a hundred billion cells, and my cells may react differently on a molecular level, probably from on a, on a genetic basis than you. So resilience is a very complex, um, uh, you know, sort of area right now that we're going to see. Watch this area because we're going to see more and more research done on what accounts for resilience. But the question is, even if you're more resilient and you're able to take take a similar G-force as me without producing symptoms, will that catch up to you over time? And the answer is probably, um, because these pathological cascades, it doesn't take a whole lot to trigger them. And you keep talking about the brain. Obviously, there's, you know, call it the storm or the fire inside the brain. But I know having coached for quite a bit, you can walk in and also see there's some neurological aspects. So typically, they get through a game maybe you have lift the next day or you take a day off and you can just see some things are off. So obviously the brain controls so many different aspects. And I know for us, you know, we would measure uh, peak power before every, every um, lift. So we would have them jump. So we'd have their baseline. We'd see that trend and track over time. And you might have somebody who go and tell you maybe on an RPE scale of, you know, one through 10, uh, you know, one, I can run through walls, 10, the walls are falling in on me. Um, yeah. Basically they're fine. Uh, they're reducers. They don't, they don't, you know, talk about that stuff, but then you just see, you know, their powers down or, or just, it doesn't look right. When we talk about the concussion, is it global? Is it depending on where you got hit or how you got hit? I know rotary forces are different than front to back, or if you hit the back of your head, there's all different angles. Does the angle at which you get hit impact it? And then specifically, you know, on the nervous system, uh, going down, downstream, what are some of the things to look for, for that, um, that stuff? Yeah, so there's two different types of forces that can be measured. One is the linear force, so the acceleration, deceleration, and then there's the rotational force. And generally speaking, the rotational sort of angular force appears to be more damaging than a linear deceleration force. So, you know, hitting your head straight against the wall versus, you know, a hit to the jaw where you have both a, you know, both a linear impact as well as a rotational impact. So the brain not only is moving, you know, forward and backward, but it's also being rotated. And so it seems that those forces are more likely to cause what we call shearing stress on those axons. And therefore, there's more, more likely to be more structural damage with a rotational injury as there is with a linear injury, and probably more damage, of course, with an injury that causes both. And most cause both. Um, but rotational injuries are particularly not good for the brain. Um, and we can measure, you know, angular acceleration in RADs, and we can measure linear decel deceleration in G-forces. So we can measure those. 
but again, I don't think, you know, there's going to come a point in time where <clears throat> we're going to say, well, if you take a hit above 45 G's, um, that's almost certain to produce a concussion because there's so much variability. Now, if I'm a coach on the sideline and I've got sensors in everybody's helmets and I see that someone's taken, you know, an interior lineman has taken a hit that's cost 110, that was 110 G-force, right? I didn't even see the hit. <laughs> and he looks fine to me. Maybe, just maybe, I'm going to pull that individual over and just do a quick assessment, right? So there's that. I think it can be helpful, but I don't think it's going to be diagnostic at the end of the day. Yeah, and do you think that that's, uh, again, the role of the coach, or do you think that's something that, especially at the high school level, there needs to be a greater emphasis on athletic trainers? The colleges, oh. are, colleges are pretty set. Colleges are pretty set, and you know, there's so much, so many, you know, eyes on TV now. So I think, you know, at least there's a, a roadmap or a, a, a good, a good faith effort, if you will, at the college level to try to have those infrastructures in place. But at the high school level, um, you might have one person covering both sides. You might have somebody that doesn't know the players. And again, they may, whether it's 110 or whether it's, you know, 20, if you know the players, you know how they behave and you can start to see some things get a little squirrely because you don't need to have data um, or metrics to know if you know your players <clears throat> that something's not right. And so, you know, you can see that in some of the psychological aspects, how they look, how the players look at you, some of their facial characteristics, you know, what's their affect, you know, what are your thoughts on that? And again, um, how to go about building a roadmap or strategy, say, if you're an athletic director or, you know, you're a high school superintendent, you know, looking to build a plan, how would you go about doing that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and a real problem. You know, as you say, collegiate athletics and, and certainly professional athletics have athletic trainers, they have physicians, team physicians, they have spotters up in the stands looking for concussion. Um, but unfortunately, two thirds of all youth athletics, whether at the high school level or lower, have no medical personnel present at games, let alone practices. And more concussions and traumatic injuries occur at, in pra during practices than occur during games. So it's a real problem. You know, I went to uh, when President Obama held his um, concussion summit in youth, um, his youth concussion summit. I went to, to the White House for that. And I was inspired to come back and start. I remember that the basically the take home message was we need more research in youth concussion because all of the concussion is occurring at the level of professional or collegiate sport, number one. And we need to bring to bear the diagnostic assessments and the treatment protocols that are in place for higher level sport to youth. So I was inspired to come back and, and start a youth uh, research program with Pop Warner football, starting with Pop Warner football and now it's in hockey. But you're right, we need a solution. First of all, we need, we need somebody trained on the sideline to detect or pitch side or ring side or whatever, what have you. We need someone trained to, de to detect concussion and to observe hits of concern. Right? So to be able to evaluate those individuals. Um, we developed something at the Mayo Clinic called Mayo Clinic Concussion Check, which is a, a basically a five-minute check that even a safety officer, a trained safety officer, could administer and deploy at the, at the sideline. Because we need a solution that's scalable. We have you know, 8 million kids in the United States participating in high school athletics alone. Right? So what, how are we going to manage concussion at that level at games and at practices. So we need, we need a solution. We need more athletic trainers. Athletic trainers are absolutely key to this uh, because not only are they skilled at identifying injury, 
musculoskeletal or concussion. Um, but to, to the point that you were making, they know their athletes. They know when something is not right. So if an athlete doesn't recognize they're concussed, um, the, the athletic trainer will often pick up some on some cues. Either they've got a dazed look in their face, their affect is different, they're more emotionally labile, uh, they're just not behaving like themselves. And athletic trainers are absolutely key. So more trained personnel on the sideline and implementing tools like concussion check. I mean, it's a just a simple oculomotor test and some simple questions that can at least raise the level of concern such that if an athlete fails the concussion check, they have to come out. They have to come out and they have to be further evaluated. I'm also encouraged by research that's being done now. You know, we have two biomarkers that have been FDA approved that supposedly detect concussion, but actually they detect, you know, bleeding in and around the brain more than they do concussion. <clears throat> but what's happening now is not only in the blood, but now in the saliva, we're measuring what we call microRNAs. And these microRNAs can be are specific for the brain and can be picked up in saliva after a concussion. And so a number of papers have been published over the past few years on the sensitivity of not only detecting concussion, but detecting all these subconcussive hits. So if an individual might have, might have taken subconcussive hits that have impacted their brain, and they appear to be predictive of those individuals who are going to want to develop persistent symptoms and other problems down the road. And so I see a day coming when all of these sort of subjective tests that are administered pitch side or ring side are gonna be replaced by spitting into a tube or spitting onto a piece of paper, almost like a pregnancy test. And it's going to tell you whether or not there's a concussion. So I see a day when much more objective tests are going to be available and hopefully scalable so that everyone can take advantage of it. Because if I have a 15-year-old playing football or hockey, I would certainly want that sort of technology and diagnostic ability to exist for my kid, such that if there was a hit that I might not have even seen, the athletic trainer's there to recognize something's not quite right. Let's do the test and let's see if, if something's happened. So I'm, I'm optimistic about the future. It's not ready for prime time yet, um, but I'm really excited about the emerging technology and the ability to hopefully objectively actually and confirm uh, a diagnosis of concussion on the sideline. My goodness. It's so incredible how much things have changed from, yeah, you got your bell wrong, come hang out, you know, and then we went into computer-based testing and now we're getting into blood. And as you mentioned, you know, you're talking about basically point of care level stuff of on the sideline and go and, and do that. And I think, you know, you know, if you could just take us a little bit, you know, down, um, you know, down the road of the history of this stuff, what, what did we get right? And then what are some of the things that we've gotten wrong that we, you know, maybe need to pay attention to in the future? Because I, I could tell you when I saw those impact tests, I get it. It's well-intentioned, but I can tell you individual, I've seen players, you know, not take it seriously. I can see, you know, individuals that actually scored higher after their concussion. And that's, that's not right. So again, we talk about all the time with technology, usually there's an intent and there's some degree of execution on that. And uh, we iterate um, for the next evolution. So could you just kind of walk through, you talked about some crazy space age stuff here, but can we go back in time to kind of from when you first started, how it, um, how it was evaluated and kind of where it is now leading up to what you just talked about? Well, when I first started, you know, I remember my first concussion, I came around the net. <clears throat> I was trying to, you know, sort of 
get the puck in the net by going around the net. Um, and uh, when I came around, I met, I met a defenseman. And the next thing I knew, I was looking up at the ceiling. So I was unconscious, unresponsive, went over to the bench, bench shook it off, and was back on the ice. So, and then later on, early on in my medical career, a concussion was when you were knocked unconscious. You lost consciousness. Um, in fact, many of the athletes, including elite athletes that I see today, when you ask them how many concussions they've had, and they might have had a 15-year career in the National Football League or as an ultimate fighter, they'll tell you none or one or two uh, because they're still of the mindset that you need to be knocked out to have a concussion. But we know that 95% of concussions are not associated with a loss of consciousness. And <clears throat> so, that, so we've come a ways and we know that even when you get your quote bell rung, that's a concussion because at least it's a brief alteration in brain function. So that's a concussion. And now we've come um, further to know that once you've got had an impact to the head, you may be concussed even in the absence of symptoms. So we've come all the way from you needing to be out cold, unresponsive and unconscious to nothing's changed and you're still concussed. The pathology and the biology is still the same. So we've come a long way there. Um, but from a diagnostic assessment, you'll remember um, how many fingers am I holding up? That's where we were, sideline assessment right? Where are you? Who are we playing? How many fingers am I holding up? To, you know, these cognitive tests, these computerized cognitive tests that are done. Now, obviously, you can't use those on the sideline to make a diagnosis. You might be able to, they might be able to provide some value when you get the person back in your office once they've been recognized as having a concussion. But these, unfortunately, lack a lot of sensitivity and specificity. And so, hopefully, when I was first getting into this field, this wasn't going to be the answer because they were a surrogate measure of brain function at best, and they were not useful whatsoever on the sideline at the point of care. Now, <clears throat> we do oculomotor testing because we realize that it's hard to actually injure the brain anywhere without actually changing um, the oculomotor system. So we can actually, in fact, the most sensitive test for concussion is looking at eye movements. So now we're testing eye movements, we look at balance and we do a neurological examination. And then we obviously ask the individual questions. Um, so there's a, there's a history aspect of it and then there's an examination aspect of it that focuses on balance and in particular eye movements. But again, at the end of the day, when I do an examination on a patient, uh, on a person, and then that person can walk in the next room and get an examination by another neurologist, and they, we both come to completely different conclusions because it's so subjective. And so it's crucial that we take the subjectivity out of the diagnostic assessment of concussion. And that's where we're going with more quantifiable tests of oculomotor function and even better, objective biomarkers where you cannot lie. You cannot trick um, a blood draw where I measure something that's now spiked in your blood or spiked in your saliva. That at the end of the day is where we need to be. And I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that we're going to go from needing to be unconscious to how many fingers am I holding up to watch my finger move to here, spit in this tube and I'll tell you whether you have a concussion. Yeah, and, and those things, you know, you think about, you keep mentioning Cascade, you keep mentioning all these different aspects at 24 hours out. So thinking about strength and conditioning, we always talk about, you know, Cellier's, you know, adaptation principle. You know, there's the, the stimulus, there's the alarm, and then there's the depression, and then there's the recovery. 
And we know that in, in young athletes or, you know, with, with, um, novice lifters, that training stimulus is day to day. We bounce back. So we bounce back in a day. So could you squat every day? Yeah, sure. You can squat just, you're doing it body weight. And then you add five pounds, you add 10 pounds. You can do that all day long. But as you go to the intermediate athlete with weekly adaptations, or we go to the advanced athlete, which is multi-month adaptations, those timelines start to shift and those timelines start to change depending on training density, depending on a bunch of different factors. But as it relates to concussions, you, you mentioned you get hit, you know, if you spit on this, uh, in this magical tube, you know, that's minutes. What happens at hours? What happens at 24 hours? And if you could kind of similar to how we would think about a training session for an athlete, 24, 48, 72. And as we kind of extend that out, what are those phases from that initial impact, the secondary fire inflammation, and then kind of, as we move forward out into to weeks? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really good question, Thomas. So we know that to, to be able to detect something in saliva or in blood after a concussion, for example, a couple of things had to have happened. The cell or its axon, its thread that comes out of it has to be injured because then it leaks the substance, right? That you detect in the saliva or in the blood. So that's the first thing that has to happen. The second thing that has to happen is that this blood brain barrier is breached. We have a barrier between our blood, what circulates in our blood, and our brain, because the brain is a is a protected environment. It has to be. It has to be protected from all the stuff that floats around in our blood. <clears throat> so in other for, for stuff to appear in the blood, there has to be an injury, it has to leak, and it has to get into the blood. So the cell or its axon has to be injured and the blood-brain barrier has to be breached. Now Sometimes that takes time for that to appear in the blood or in the saliva. So there are some brain-specific biomarkers, we call it, or chemicals that can only be found in the brain. That's, that's the specificity. They didn't come from muscle. They didn't come from the knee. They had to have come from the brain. And some of them appear very early. And others appeared in, in a delayed fashion. And some that appear early depending on when you measure them, if you measure them 48 hours later, it may be gone. You may have missed it. And then for those that have peak at, let's say, two days or three days, if you test it too early, you're not going to find it because it takes time to appear. <clears throat> there are these new, the new microRNAs that I talked about are different. Why? Because they're protected. They're like in, a, they're in what we call an exosome or they're in like a, a coating. So they can't be broken down by enzymes in the blood. They just continue to circulate. And it doesn't matter whether you change the pH or, and, you know, it doesn't matter whether you freeze the sample and thought and freeze it again and thought again. These are very resilient. And so they can be picked up at any point in time. And what we notice sometimes is that you measure it at 24 hours, you measure it at seven days, you measure it at two months, and it remains elevated right? So it remains elevated for one of two reasons. A, it's either resistant to being broken down, like microRNAs, or B, <clears throat> it continues to leak, right? So, you know, I detected at 48 hours, why should I be detecting this thing two months later or two years later? The only way that happens is if there's persistent pathology in the brain that's ongoing and progressive and leading to continual breakdown 
and continual leakage of these brain biomarkers in the blood. And that's been shown. And so if you're, let's say, tau, which is an important protein in the brain, but also responsible for when it clumps, causing chronic traumatic encephalopathy and other dementias, if you measure tau in the blood at two days and it's still in the blood at two months, you're probably going to be in trouble. You're probably one of those individuals who's going to be developing mental health or neurological problems that's going to persist. And so these biomarkers now become prognostic so that if you're tau or if you're NFL, not National Football League, but neurofilament light, if they're elevated in the blood <clears throat> at seven days, let's say, and at a month, okay, well, now I no longer care if you've fully recovered and your symptoms are gone. I no longer care that your MRI scan of your brain is normal because I only see what's happening at a macroscopic view in your MRI, not at a microscopic view. I care about the fact that you're continuing to leak and therefore continuing to have damage from the last concussion you had. So no, you shouldn't return to play. You see where this is going to become very handy and no longer, we're going to take the subjectivity out of this entirely. Yeah. So I'll be able to tell you, you know what? I don't care if you've had one, two, three, 10 concussions. You know, we, we hear sometimes how many concussions is too many. That's a, it's an impossible question to answer because we know <clears throat> some colleagues of mine at Harvard did a study that was published last year, over 9,000 people who had a single concussion and they were compared to 9,000 other people who've never had concussion. And within a five-year period of time, there was a significantly, the odds of developing coronary artery disease, diabetes, epilepsy, um, <clears throat> depression, psychosis, anxiety, ADD, post-traumatic stress, all of these things were significantly elevated in the group who had a single concussion. Now, was that their only concussion? Did they have subconcussive hits that they might not have recognized? Perhaps. Did they have concussions earlier in life that they didn't recognize? Perhaps. But nevertheless, we're just talking about a single concussion with a significantly increased risk long-term of all of these problems. So you can imagine that the individual who takes these repetitive hits and you're coming in and you played, let's say you played four years of collegiate football and you're coming in to see me now <clears throat> for a brain health assessment. And I, I happen to measure some of these biomarkers and I see that they're elevated. Should you continue to play? That's the question. And the answer probably is going to be guided by these objective markers and not so much what you tell me or what I find on my gross neurological examination, which even though I've been doing it for 30 years, is often normal, is often normal. I can't overcome your strength when I do a muscle strength test. I can, your reflexes look fine. So I do my full neurological examination and you pass with flying colors. And yet... Yet, you're continually breaking down the architecture of the brain, spilling this material into your blood. I need to know that to be able to inform you um, as to what not only your future holds, <clears throat> but whether or not you should return to play. And so the whole idea behind you know, coming out with this product was I'm tired of watching the devastation in people young and old that occur after they're concussed. I'm just, I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of not being able to treat the injury and do as much as I can with that's safe now, right? And that's why, that's why I, you know, we developed this product in partnership with, with Thorne. 
Um, Thorne has an established relationship with Mayo Clinic for some time. I knew, having <clears throat> interacted with them a little bit before developing this product, that they were best in class. And, you know, 75% Ameri of Americans take supplements. It's a $60 billion industry, right? Why, you know, lots, so a lot of people take supplements. But what's really important to me, if I'm taking it or my family's taking it, is knowing that what's in there is actually in there, right? And so given their three-decade history, given, their, um, given the fact that they're driven by science, that they pay meticulous attention to detail, that they source their ingredients so that I can be as sure as I can that the ingredients that are appearing are at the right dose, they are the right product, they are the right ingredient, and the purity of the product is there. So it's, it's that plus their, their interest and their desire to be, as you put it earlier, at the tip of the spear. Do we get this right with this product? Almost certainly not. Is this, in other words, is it going to be refined over time? Almost certainly. As science advances, as research advances, as we gain more knowledge, we might be tweaking some of the ingredients. We might be adding some. We might be taking away some. So, no, you know, we certainly don't think that this is the final product. Um, but what interests me and why I partnered, why we partnered with them was because they want to be at the leading edge. They want to continue to advance the science, to advance knowledge so that we can continue to refine these products over time. And down the road, <clears throat> because we now have the ability to sort of paint a molecular picture of you as an individual, your supplementation needs or your drug needs, right, or your nutritional support needs are likely to be very different from mine, right? We're genetically different people. Um, we're physiologically different people. And so right now for medications and for supplements, it's kind of a one size fits all approach. Precision medicine, personalized medicine based on your metabolic physiologic needs, based on your you know, genetics is not here yet, but <clears throat> they are moving in that direction. So I see a day in the not too distant future where we'll be able to, to tailor supplementation needs to an individual's physiology, which would be really exciting. I think all of sports performance is moving towards that idea of individualized medicine, and it could be the barbell and squat. It could be the amount of conditioning. It could be the amount of hydration. I mean, if you look at sweat rates, if you look at what you sweat, I mean, one of the things, you know, we laugh, you mentioned, you know, your relationship with Thorne. I mean, I let everybody know they were such a critical part of our success at Yale. I mean, cramping, we fixed that, you know, catalyte, you don't cramp. When we think about going into sleep, they fixed that. And then just, as you mentioned, that quality of not having to worry because there is no FDA regulation. So you're kind of at the mercy. And if you go back to, you know, it's, it's a, it's funny, but it's not funny of the, the lack of regulation, especially in the early 2000s, late 90s, where people are making supplements, you know, in their in their home and yeah. don't know what you're getting and, you know, contaminants and, you know, even sharing facilities with maybe products that have banned substance. So especially if you're an athlete with all good intentions, you are responsible if you, you know, get a product that's been cross contaminated. So again, um, Thorne is a legacy and a reputation for, you know, I think not only um, trying to seek out the right answer, but also um, standing on guided principles of science and trying to bridge that gap of optimization. As you said, um, taking that more um, medicine-based approach of 
okay, what do I need? And understanding everybody runs through substrates differently. Everybody responds to stress differently. Um, So certainly it'll get um, better and better over time. But I want to bring it back to what you said um, there, because as a parent, I'm excited that there's going to be blood markers and tests. Um, Maybe a coach is petrified that they're going to lose their best players. Um, I can also think, as you were saying that, it reminded me of uh, some of the sleep trackers and some of the other 24-hour monitoring and how they got banned by the collective bargaining agreements. I think what you're proposing here is really kind of um, letting everybody know there's a Pandora's box of ethics that are going to be coming out. And then more specifically, you mentioned you were an athlete. You probably wouldn't change that. Uh, I was an athlete. And again, I know that there were times where I've, you know, I sustained concussions. And when you get into that opportunity or that moment, when we do have that clarity of, uh, I think you, you talked about lifespan and longevity and health and an individual loves their game or loves their craft. I know Dana White, um, was on uh, Rogan's podcast <clears throat> and talking about how fighters are just born. They just love it. And at some point they mentally decided it's no longer for them. What happens if that day doesn't come uh, on the same time when we start seeing some of these blood markers and then specifically too, I mean, this could be used in recruiting. This could be used in all sorts of things. And I, and I know that it, it becomes a very, very slippery slope because an area that's been kind of shrouded by darkness and stigma uh, once we get these blood markers, I mean, it's going to light the whole room up. And suddenly now we're going to have objective questions of long-term health, short-term performance, um, and then the psychology and the ethos of what makes people tick. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, Thomas, <laughs> it is Pandora's box and it's a great question. <clears throat> At the youth level, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of youth athletes are not going to want to play, play professional sport. And if we want and need them to be all that they can be and to lead productive, happy social lives, um, we need to protect, protect the brain that makes them the essence of who they are, the organ that makes them the essence of who they are, and that's the brain. So I think it's that we have an obligation to do everything we can to protect the brain of, of youth athletes. Now, when you're a professional athlete, <clears throat> it's all about informed consent, right? So you make a decision. These elite athletes, and you know, I've seen many of them over the years. From the look, I was skating from the time I was two, and I was playing organized hockey since the time I was four. And growing up as a young boy in Canada, what, what did I want to do? I wanted to become a professional hockey player. But and 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 I'm nowhere close to having the level of skill that so many others have that actually can achieve that. And so from the time they could walk almost this is what they wanted to do and they trained their whole lives to do that and they finally make it and not only do they make it but they excel right so they are the elite of the elite and now you're telling them they can't play when they don't know anything else and they're thinking well what's my future what is my future hole i i've not trained to do anything else this is what i've set myself up for in life so i get it I totally get it as a former athlete, and I see how devastated these individuals are when they realize, when the penny drops and they realize they've got to walk away. Now, a lot of them walk away, and they do fine. They do well, because some of them have children, some of them families, and they say, that's more important to me. And some of them walk away even before necessarily a lot of physicians would tell them to walk away. Um, But others don't want to walk away. This is what they know. This is what they do. They're willing to take the risk, even if after you've fully informed them 
of what their future might be. And so for me, with professional athletes, it's, it's, it's about informed consent. And as long as they understand the implication and the risk that they're taking, and they consent to continue to participate, then that's fine. But it's still our obligation to make sure that we're protecting the health, safety, and wellness of professional athletes as well. Because, you know, at the age of 30, 35, certainly 40, they're no longer going to be professional athletes. And they've got more than half their life left to live. So I can't tell you the number of, and I mean really elite athletes, who I see in their 50s and 60s who tell me if I had to do it all over again, no way. No way. Um, not everyone, not everyone, but a lot of them. And these are people who have had extremely successful careers. And so we have an obligation to inform them and to continue to test and to continue to look after their health and safety and wellness because they've got hopefully a long life to live. And we don't want, you know, I'm sitting with an elite athlete a couple of weeks ago who is mid-30s. And this elite athlete fears the worst. Fears the worst. And because of all of the, the symptoms that, that he's having. And if had to do it over again, he would do it. He would do it because of the life that it's, it's given him so far. Even though he knows what could be coming. <clears throat> He's optimistic that hopefully medical science will bring a solution that could potentially reverse some of the issues and prevent progression. So I think a lot of athletes are thinking and are very supportive of medical science and research and are willing to participate because they know that they will need it. Their kids might need it. Their friends need it. Um, and so they're hopeful. But I, I have to tell you, I think at the end of the day, we, we have an absolute obligation, particularly to young athletes, because, you know, my kids aren't going to play, play professional sport um, and hopefully they're going to live productive lives. So we owe it to them because they can't necessarily make the kind of informed decision that a 25 year old can make about his or her future. Um, but we have I think we have an ethical obligation if we have medical testing that we can bring to bear. And we actually can predict the future because the future of medicine is going to be about uncovering the invisible and predicting the future and understanding what diseases you're at risk for and identifying prodromal stages of disease. So before they even become symptomatic, that is the future of medicine. And we have an obligation to deploy um, that sort of science and technology at all levels whether you're a quarterback in the National Football League uh, or whether you're, you know, an, account, an accountant sitting in an office. I mean, that's, that's a lot to take in, Doc. That's a lot to take in. And if we know that, you know, there's things that we can do on our end, um, and I say we being <clears throat> sports performance, strength and conditioning, what are, what are some of the things that we can do to either aid and help? So someone makes the decision whether their blood markers are good or not. Um, again, they've made that informed choice from our standpoint, what are things that we can, cause we can't draw blood necessarily all the time. What are some of the things that we can do on our end, 
um, to monitor, to assess. I know you mentioned earlier the the stability stuff. You mentioned, um, you know, some of the ocular things. What are things that we can do um, to either help and aid the individuals um, in their return to play or that continuing their career? And what are some of the things um, that we should look out for or not do? I think we should be, if we have the capacity to monitor the asymptomatic development of or progression of disease, we have to do it. And we have to do it more frequently. So it's not good enough to actually do baseline testing at the beginning of the season. Let's say for a collision or a high velocity contact sport athlete, it's not good enough to do testing at the beginning of the season and then testing at the end of the season or the beginning of next season. Because we know we did a study once just looking at oculomotor function in high school hockey players, and 10% of them had a decline, had, you know, significant abnormalities after a season, and they, had no re- they didn't report a concussion. So again, we know what happens with these subconcussive impacts. So depending on the sport, I think we have an obligation if the technology is there and if the tools are there that we bring them to bear so that we're monitoring for injury that isn't visible to our naked eye um, or detectable on a, you know, a sideline examination. We have a responsibility to do that. And I don't know the frequency with which that should be done yet, um, but once preseason each year is probably not enough. Um, so we have an obligation to detect injury that's occurred that triggers these pathological cascades that are persisting and causing secondary injury under our nose. And we know that that could lead to, I just told you about the study in Harvard, if within five years that leads to systemic or neurological or mental health issues, I think we've done that person a disservice by not tracking that more carefully. So I think we have an obligation to, in the future, once these tools become available, and we have some of them right now, you're right, we can't be drawing blood all the time, but some non-invasive things that are quick and objective and easy to administer, we, I think we have an obligation to do it. My partner, uh, Eric Renigan, uh, we talked a little bit on one of our previous podcasts about the idea of merit-based training. So the idea is if I'm going to throw a whiteboard up, we're all going to do it all day. Everyone's going to do it. And we go, and then there's no tracking. The importance of tracking and, and long-term trend analysis. I mean, you think about in a typical off-season in college football, there's 111 workouts, plus or minus. You times that by three, four years, you suddenly now have a, a wealth of data. But you ask you know, some groups or um, some, some programs, and they can't recall the last month. They don't know how this individual has changed. And then when we talk about training or integrating different technologies, it's got to be incorporated in the training. The days of, you know, pre and post season testing are over. I mean, shame on you if that's where where you're at. Because again, as you mentioned, yes, there may be performance benefits, but you're also getting kind of those strategy and durability metrics. You're missing those each and every day. Because every athlete, especially they get called up. Now they're on varsity. They get called up. They went from, you know, 50 pitches to 150 pitches, you know, a week, all those things, those load management strategies are so unique to everybody. So really using merit-based training and realizing sometimes, you know, you need to regress in order to move forward, which I think is often overlooked. And, and how prepared are you? We talk all the time about the physical aspects, but you know, what is their, is their nutrition currently where it needs to be, to be a starter. And I'll tell you right now, most of the time it's not, 
you know, yeah. we'll go and ask an athlete, you know, okay, you're running now six miles uh, a weekend um, in your game. Did you up your carbohydrates? Did you up your, you know, whatever? And again, I, I say, I say nutrition in the sense of medicine, because let's be honest, food is medicine and what you supply yourself or you don't. And then realizing you may need to aid and augment and supplement. If you're in a hot uh, climate, you're going to have a different approach than if you're going to be in a cold climate. And sometimes you might have a sport where it's a hundred degrees when you start the season and then you're playing in a foot of snow. So, and everywhere in between. So kind of, I think that's so important. And I think that kind of gives us a good segue into kind of looking at, you know, the product that you've talked about, you mentioned there's 13 ingredients. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to play the role of the parent. You know, I don't really like supplements. I'm kind of unsure about it. And, you know, my, my, my son or daughter is a high school athlete. I want to be able to know kind of what is this product? What is it not? Um, is it safe for kids? And then is this, you know, as we go through the different product lists, is this something that, you know, I should be worried about, or is there a certain time or age, age range that's better or worse? And then, and kind of make sure that we unpack all those and, and answer those questions for our listeners. So kind of with that, could you just kind of, kind of break each one of those down? Yeah. Great question. So, you know, to be just, Full disclosure, I'm an allopathic physician um, through and through, right? I'm not a homeopathic uh, provider. I um, don't have depth of uh, expertise or a long history in, um, you know, supplement supplements. So um, I fully um, appreciate that, that question and the tone of the question. But here... Um, Going back to what I said initially, looking at what happens in the brain and knowing the, the details of the, you know, the injury mechanisms that are occurring and seeing some of the science out there where these, let's call them supplements, um, they're every bit as much a drug, I guess. They're a chemical entity like, like many drugs but they're, they're widely available and they're referred to as supplements. So let's say, let's call them supplements, have been used because of their known mechanism of action. So these were pulled out of the clear blue sky. A group of scientists studied glutathione, the effect of glutathione in a brain injury model for a reason. They know what glutathione does they know what's happening in the brain after a concussion. Hey, let's test glutathione. What to is see glutathione, it, Doc? Not to cut you off. What is glutathione? Because I, I don't know what it is, and I'm sure most of our listeners don't. What is glutathione? Well, I, I bring up glutathione because that, that's one of the ingredients. But glutathione is a chemical that's rapidly and significantly reduced in the brain after concussion. It's a powerful antioxidant. And it's especially prevalent in an area of the brain and depleted in an area of the brain that's responsible for memory, which is called the hippocampus. And glutathione has been shown to protect this blood-brain barrier and indeed blood vessels, as well as the mitochondria um, against toxic free radicals. So we know glutathione is a powerful antioxidant. We know those are its properties. And we know oxidative stress and inflammation occurs in the brain. So, hey, let's test glutathione, right? NAC, by the way, or N-acetylcysteine, which is also in this product, was the very chemical that was tested in soldiers in Afghanistan that I talked about. And NAC, when you take it into the body, is converted into glutathione. So glutathione is a, 
is a is a, something we have in our body um, that's a powerful antioxidant. So, but I, I just I just bring it up. I could say curcumin or DHA or nicotinamide riboside or any of the chemicals that are in this supplement. Each of them have a known mechanism of action, and so scientists looked at that mechanism of action and looked at the cascade, the pathology that occurs in the brain, and says, "Huh, maybe this would work here." And so there's a an enormous science here. So I looked at what's happening in the brain. I looked at the science behind these chemicals that are used to treat in animal models and experimentally traumatic brain injury and thought, okay, well, these are widely available. They've been around for a long time. They're generally regarded as safe by the FDA. Um, uh, They're well tolerated. People take them. What if we combined them because they each do something different. They may work on the same cascade, but they work at a different part of the cascade, or they may work on several cascades. What if we combined all of these, right? That would be a powerful, because one one of them alone is unlikely to actually disrupt this very complex biology that occurs after a traumatic brain injury. But what if we took them all and combined them? And is that even feasible and possible? Or would they interact with each other? Turns out it was. And so that was sort of the rationale for bringing this forward, because what do we have to lose? If we could offer something that, and and by the way, we were about to launch three clinical trials to test it. Because I said, as I said, you know, I've done a lot of research. 70% of my time is consumed with research. So we're going to do the science. Um, another reason to partner with Thorne, but we're going to be at the tip of the spear of this. And so we're going to do the science to, to show what this product does and, and what it doesn't. But what do we have to lose? Because if we didn't bring something forward with all of those you know, qualifications, and by the way, there are placebo-controlled studies ongoing right now, if you went in clinicaltrials.gov, for each of these chemicals alone. So am I going to wait 15, 20 years for all of the studies to be done? Am I going to wait 15, 20 years for a therapeutic to be brought to space? Or am I I going to combine products for which there's science and evidence and fits the biology of of the injury and bring it forward in a way that first does no harm, has to be safe? Because once it gets out there, people with all sorts of different diseases on all sorts of different medicines are going to be taking this, right? So it has to be safe. And hopefully, it's going to make a difference. And so that, that's why we, we came out with this. Is it safe in children? It's a great question. It's, obviously, it's a critical question. Um, it was designed for kids down to the age of about 13. Why? Because, you know, the way youth soccer is going and youth hockey, you can't really have impact. And you shouldn't have impact before the age of 12 head impact, right? So they're taking checking out of hockey and kids less than the age of 13. They're taking heading out of soccer and kids less than the age of 13. So if you're 13 years old, you weigh about 45 kilos. So if you weigh 45 kilos, then everything in here is safe for a 45 kilo person. And so if you're a six-year-old, I wouldn't want my six-year-old taking this because I really don't know you know, if this is going to be safe for a six-year-old, particularly at the dosages that they're being used. We need to use dosages that are going to be bioactive. 
and that are actually going to be effective for adults who sustain traumatic injuries. But um, that dosage, the dosage may be too high for a six-year-old who's playing Pop Warner football. So, um, and, I, and quite frankly, I don't think there should be any contact at that age anyway for a developing brain. So it was developed in, with the principle in mind that there shouldn't really be head impacts before the age of 13. Um, and knowing that an average 13-year-old weighs on average about 45 kilos, then all of the ingredients and all, all at each at the individual dosages that are in this product is safe for that kid. Now, I know we covered some of those um, components and elements. I want to make sure we run through the rest here. I see some amino acids um, that are in here and also magnesium as well as the riboflavin. Could you just explain kind of the thought process behind those? Because I don't think we covered those on the first round. And then the last section on this, I want to, you know, the final ingredient here is I want to talk about beta-hydroxybutyrate, but I'm going to make that its own section. Walk me through what was the thought on the, you know, kind of the amino acids and, and the riboflavin and mag. Okay, so, you know, branch chain amino acids, first of all, we have 20 amino acids, nine of which are essential. And what essential means is that your body doesn't produce them on their own. So you have to get them through your diet or through supplementation. And, and most healthy diets, you know, we get an adequate amount of essential amino acids in a healthy diet. The branch chain amino acids are three of those essential amino acids. And it's leucine, isoleucine, and valine. And what do they do in the brain? <clears throat> Well, as amino acids, they're essential for producing proteins. And proteins in the brain are neurotransmitters that allow one cell to communicate with another and hormones that are produced in the brain. So they're essential for the ability for you know, cells to communicate with one another because they're responsible for protein synthesis. After a concussion, it's interesting that brain levels of branched chain amino acids are rapidly depleted. And this contributes to the sort of metabolic and energy crisis in the brain. So studies in both animals and humans have consistently shown that branched chain amino acid supplementation is safe and it restores both cognitive function and sleep disruption. So that was the idea behind putting branched chain amino acids in there. They're important in the brain for protein synthesis. They're rapidly depleted in the brain after an injury. And so are you getting enough through diet? Possibly not. So supplementation, we thought, was, was going to be important, um, particularly in the, in the time after injury, the two to four weeks after injury. Awesome. Yeah. And I think, you know, if anyone at the NCAA is listening, one of my uh, things that, you know, drives me crazy is they have their constant list of things that, you know, they're okay with and they're not. And I think, you know, Mark Emmert, if you're listening, I will personally buy you a tub of this and send it to you because when we start talking about the health of our athletes and we start talking about you know, emerging science. I think the NCAA has to take a stand and work side by side with industry leaders to understand that, you know, when we see this research, this overwhelming amount of research that, you know, there are positive benefits. I think we should be open to it because I know, again, specifically as it relates to the amino acids, um, that was a point of contention. I know they've made some changes, um, but I think that that's incredible. And especially in something like this, it makes sense. Um, and also to, um, as you pointed out, there's just an overwhelming uh, sense of information that yes, this stuff works, but then also too, now when we start talking about the implications to the brain, we had always thought about it from an mTOR um, specific um, mm. function for uh, preventing muscle wasting during high levels of conditioning um, mm -hmm. and certainly effective for that. But I, I want to keep going because um, again, too, by the time we finish this, we will have covered every single uh, aspect of this. And, and I think, you know, what I'm hearing as a parent 
is there was a lot of care that was put into each and every one of these. And it wasn't just, let's just fill this with crap. We're going to go in and have a thought process. And it sounds like even as you mentioned, those clinical trials that you'll be running, it's open for further interpretation, which I think is ultimately, that's what science is. It's always open to evaluate the new information as it come in, but it sounds like we're really committed here to take this first stab um, at making something um, to augment uh, maybe some of our activities to protect the brain. But w- what was the thought with magnesium and, and ribofem? Cause I'm not, I'm not too familiar with how that plays into the brain. So, you know, magnesium inhibits several mechanisms responsible for those secondary injuries that occur after a brain injury, including the inhibition of glutamate release. Remember I talked about glutamate being the most abundant excitatory neurotransmitter, too much of a good thing, including excitation is not good. It's actually toxic. So it, it actually inhibits excessive glutamate release uh, from the cell, and it actually inhibits calcium entry into the cell. Now, if, I, if you want to get granular, the way it does that is that when, when you release glutamate, it binds to a receptor called the NMDA receptor. When you activate that receptor, it allows calcium to enter the cell. So magnesium, when it's attached to the NMDA receptor, controls the activity of that receptor, and therefore the entry of calcium into the cell. So it really works through this excitotoxicity cascade by inhibiting glutamate release and by blocking calcium entry into the cell by modulating the receptor to which glutamate attaches. It also inhibits the breakdown of membrane lipids. So, you know, most of the cell membrane is fat, it's phospholipids, and that's responsible for the, for the integrity of, of the cell. And when you have oxidative stress, you get toxic free radicals that are produced that break down those membrane lipids. And so magnesium can actually inhibit the breakdown of those phospholipids. It it, it can prevent or at least attenuate the swelling that can occur after a brain injury. And it participates in this sort of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation chain. So it, it can actually attenuate the dysfunction of mitochondria or that power pack inside the cell. And magnesium has been shown to improve both early and long-term motor cognitive function. Uh, you know, everybody's heard of magnesium, but no one, no, I shouldn't say no one, but very few people understand um, the, what at a molecular level, what magnesium is actually doing. And similar with riboflavin, riboflavin <clears throat> is already used for a variety of different neurological conditions, which have sort of energy crisis or energy supply not meeting demand as the fundamental biological substrate of that illness. So even in migraine, for example, riboflavin has been used for decades, but riboflavin is a, is a cofactor for an important mediator of that electron transport chain and oxidative phosphorylation that occurs in the mitochondria that produces energy. So, you know, at the end of the day, as I said, the mitochondria are really the power packs, the batteries of the cell they produce ATP, and that drives all cellular energy and all of the processes that keep a cell healthy. And riboflavin participates and is important and integral in that energy production. Well, again, to make sense, and again, as we start thinking about the the inter- interconnectivity that you, you've thought about with each one of these and how they impact each other, um, you know, again, too, I just I wish this had come out sooner. Um, but nonetheless, you know, we kind of get into this last, um, area, this beta hydroxybutyrate. Um, again, I remember, um, thinking about 
going back in time into 2017, it was the first time I had thought about, um, thought about ketosis and, and trying to understand that. And I remember there was a study and I can't remember exactly who did it, but it was basically saying the brain gets rocked. Glucose metabolism is drastically affected, but for some reason we th- start thinking about ketones, um, they can cross into the brain and, and actually provide that energy. And so I was thinking, I was like, wow, that would be really great if you know, we supply uh, protein uh, to muscles after they've um, been, been torn down through training. Well, I bet the brain that would work similarly. And, and there was no product that time. And so there were some different studies with ketogenic diets and an understanding that, but obviously to get into ketosis for, especially take a college athlete or high school athlete might be tough. Um, then they came out with esters, um, then they've got salts. And I noticed in here and kind of, again, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, and, and also to kind of, this seems like it's tying into the larger point of here of, of this, this massive event has happened. There's been a structural change or a biochemical change. Where does this play into the role? And then what kind of numbers are we talking about? Would you see someone get over 0.6 millimoles or would you see really no change in the blood? How would that work? Yeah. So you know, to your point, Thomas, ketogenic diets can certainly put you in ketosis and achieve, um, um, you know, concentrations of ketone bodies of greater than five nanomolars, but it takes time for that to happen. It doesn't happen fast enough when you're dealing with an injury. So that's where supplementation is really required. And you can achieve, you know, um, greater than five nanomolar concentration when you supplement with sufficient quantities of the ketone ester or a ketone body. And beta-hydroxybutyrate is really a ketone body. And it represents, as you, as you said, an alternative to glucose. And it's the only endogenous or internal fuel source that can significantly co- contribute to brain energy metabolism beyond glucose. It so happens that elevated levels of glucose is associated with a worse outcome after a brain injury. So the more blood sugar you have around, the worse you do after a brain injury. And that has to do with the brain's inability to optimally utilize glucose after the brain's been injured. So its ability to actually consume and utilize glucose is impaired. So having more of it around is not only not helpful from an energy production standpoint, but that which does does get metabolized produces lactic acid and other byproducts that aren't necessarily healthy for an injured brain. So, you know, ketone bodies and BHB being one of them is a more efficient fuel source for the brain. And by the way, to your other point, BHB, unlike other things that don't penetrate the blood-brain barrier, BHB rapidly gets across the blood-brain barrier without any help. So it's immediately transported and gets into the brain where it, where it can do its, uh, do its thing. The other thing is when I say it's more efficient as a production, from a production of energy standpoint, for every molecule of ATP or energy that beta-hydroxybutyrate or a ketone body produces, it produces proportionally less oxygen-free radicals than glucose does. So it's, it's more neuroprotective when you metabolize a molecule of BHB compared to a molecule of glucose, because as you produce more energy with glucose, you produce some oxygen-free radicals, which in a healthy system can be broken down by free radical scavenging substances you have in your body. But in an injured system, it's not possible. So it's a much more effective, readily available, consumable, and efficient uh, source of energy or fuel for, for an injured brain in particular. I'll say it does a lot of other things too. BHB decreases, again, glutamate synthesis, right? 
by converting it to GABA. And GABA is the most abundant inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. So it takes all that excess of glutamate and converts it into GABA. That's a good thing. It actually increases the production of what's called BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. What is BDNF to? Accelerates repair of injured tissue, brain tissue, um, promotes neurogenesis or the production of new neurons. I mean, we didn't realize till the last decade, we thought that you had the neurons you were born with and that you have as an adult, that's all you get. And 1% decline with age. So, you, you know, I'm losing brain cells as I sit here and talk, as you can probably tell. <laughs> but, uh, but little did we know that not only can you generate new neurons, but you can generate new synapses, new connections. And that's what BDNF does. So BHB actually increases the production of, of BDNF. BHB also increases cerebral blood flow. Ironically, cerebral blood flow is declines after an injury, after a brain injury, just at a time when you're in an energy crisis and you need more blood flow and more delivery of nutrients. Now we can get into why, but, but take my word for it, cerebral blood flow actually declines. Well, ketone bodies and BHB actually improve cerebral. And the final thing I'll say about BHB is it has anti-apoptotic activity. So what is apoptosis? Apoptosis is a form of programmed cell death that's highly regulated and controlled uh, in the human body because once it starts, can't stop. Once you program, once you program a cell to die, it's going to die. Um, so during apoptosis, cells kill themselves, either because it senses stress or danger from within, or it's actually doing fine, but it's sensing stress from without. So neighboring cells, which are sending off signals and maybe some inflammatory cytokines and oxygen-free radicals, it's sensing that stress and it programs itself to die. So there's an intrinsic and an extrinsic pathway. Either way, the cell kills itself by activating what are called caspases, which are really proteases that, or enzymes that degrade proteins. So that's, how, that's apoptosis. And in fact, literally, a couple of these caspases are called initiator caspases, which then act activates, and get this, executioner caspases. And these are the enzymes that actually kill the cell. So calcium enters, poisons the mitochondria, poor energy production, and activates these apoptotic cascades. Well, BHB inhibits that. So it's not, just a, it's not just a source of energy. It suppresses excitotoxicity by converting glutamate to GABA. It improves cerebral blood flow and actually disrupts these programmed cell death pathways. Is that, uh, is that sufficient depth? Yeah. And, and I, I love the fact that you pointed out that you could have dug deeper. I think anybody listening understands that there's a, a lot of research that went into this and it's pretty, uh, pretty well understood that this is a positive thing. And, and it's really exciting too, because I, I remember back in 2017 thinking, geez, there's a lot, you know, Dom D'Agostino and, and Jeff Volick and those guys, you know, and Dr. Dix at, at, uh, at Yale, they've done a lot of stuff about inflammation. And I think this is probably one of the first times where I thought, wow, nutrition really is global. I mean, we always th talk about, you know, protein, fats, and carbs. That is, that is such an old way of thinking about food, <clears throat> thinking about the micronutrients, the macronutrients, and then yeah. how they work together. And it's exciting to think about, you could either put yourself in an inflammatory state 
or not an inflammatory state. And that's probably too why some of the stuff about the fish oils, I mean, that sounds like that was probably what the attempt was um, on that stuff. But it's really reassuring uh, to know that that we're starting to combine um, different genres of research for this population that, you know, may have been overlooked or not really combined. Cause that's really where the insights and innovation come through is breaking down those silos from different research sectors and saying, Hey, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's bring that over here. And, and, and I, I appreciate that again, as a, as a coach and as a parent, um, you know, and certainly too, uh, makes sense. Now, one thing that's weird though, is that if you go to the site and I, I was trying to take a look at this, there's a regular version and a plus version. And I know every single meathead out there is going to say, well, if, you know, if there's a plus version, I'm going to buy that. And if it says one scoop, I'm going to do two scoop. What was the thought between having two different um, levels? Cause that's not very common in the supplement world. What was the thought behind that? And then <clears throat> really just kind of an administrative standpoint, how, how would one implement that? Do you buy both and break in case of emergency and, you know, and if you do just take it, you know, can you get yourself like tolerance level raised up where it doesn't work? I mean, can, can you walk through that? Yeah, thanks for that question, Thomas. So the idea behind this was that, and it goes back to the subconcussive hits and symptomatic concussion, right? So if you're someone with a high level of exposure or risk of having repetitive impacts to the head, let's say you're a football player or a hockey player or a boxer or whatever, um, not me who's sitting here at my desk and unless I fall out of my chair, I'm not going to have a concussion today, hopefully. But if, if I'm constantly exposed on a daily or weekly basis, then probably I'm, and I know that subconcussive impacts, as we've talked at length about, trigger these same cascades. I'm probably going to want to be taking this every day while I'm exposed. So during training camp and during the season, right? Practices, games, probably going to want to be taking this every day because I don't know, if I'm a football player, if I'm a defensive lineman and I'm taking 300 hits to the head every, 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 uh, every season, and I know that some of them are going to trigger these cascades without my even knowing it, I just want to be honest. That was the idea here. So, <clears throat> but if you are, and then, and then Cinequil Plus, presumably after a symptomatic head injury where you now have symptoms, <clears throat> we know that it takes about two to four weeks for the brain to metabolically recover. And we know that because we've done spectroscopy studies. I mean, me, we as a, as a medical community, academic community, we've done brain spectroscopy studies and measured metabolites and see that it takes two to four weeks in a brain that's not injured again to recover. And so the metabolic demands and the energy demands are likely higher when you have symptoms. So what Cynical Plus does is it boosts um, certain ingredients in dosage that hopefully will meet those energy. So if I, for example, go mountain bike biking today and I fell off my bike and I had a concussion, right? I would take Cinequil Plus, but I wouldn't necessarily be taking Cinequil every day because, you know, I'm not going to, my level of exposure to a repeated head impact is very, very low. Now, having said that, I do take it every day anyway. Why? Well, because all of this stuff in here is good for brain health, right? You said met food is medicine. This is medicine too. Um, and so I think, I hope I'm doing something to further my own brain health um, because all of the ingredients in here are important for brain health. I mean, you, to me, you mentioned DHA. DHA, 97% of the fat and lipid 
in our cell membranes in our brain is DHA. And so I feel like probably we're doing something that's good for us. And why do we take vitamins every day? Why do we take a multivitamin? We're being proactive about our health. We think we're doing something good for ourselves. Well, the same thing here. From a brain health standpoint, why not take things that suppress inflammation and boost energy production? Um, because, well, how can it hurt? How can it hurt? And if we're doing something good for our brain health, I want every advantage I can get uh, to preserve my cognitive function and my brain health for it, so that my brain health and my health span equals my lifespan. You know, when I, when I first heard of this, the first thing that came to mind is so we had a very strict um, regimen, both in season and out of season for how we would handle either hydration uh, or uh, protein um, for athletes. And my thought on this was, is if you're going to commit to playing a contact sport and, and you love it and your, your family loves it. And again, it's part of your culture. As you, you talked about that informed consent, will it prevent a concussion? No, nobody could make that claim, but what about, what about a mouth guard? What about a helmet? What about that over the counter helmet or, you know, buying some of these ones where they've been independently tested in the lab. I kind of look at this as saying is that, as you mentioned, it's not going to hurt. There's certainly a lot of opportunities to, um, you know, see how it helps, but I almost see this becoming part of that regime. You know, we would say, okay, post game, you're going to take protein and we're going to do hydration. You know, we weigh athletes, you know, in the preseason, you make sure that they're not dehydrated. They're losing, you know, body weight. It would make sense to me either at the individual level, team level, or kind of department wide that you would find a way to integrate this. Maybe it's an athletic trainer has a couple cases. And again, when we talk about brains, I mean, I could tell you right now, I could think of tons of alumni that would be happily willing to donate um, for something like this and work in partnership with sports medicine or work in partnership with the team's booster clubs and things like that. And so certainly, again, maybe you just get the plus, but say, hey, if anybody, you know, gets taken out of a game, um, you know, we're going to use this to aid and augment them um, in their recovery because we would do it if it were an orthopedic injury. We would go yep. out and say, yeah, we're going to make sure we go to physical therapy. Uh, yep. And whether this is the plan that you use or you have a different one. I think the most important thing is the days of just sit on the sideline and just recover and wear some sunglasses. Those, those days are over. You have to have a plan. And it seems like the field is moving towards diagnostics, um, also recovery. So having a plan and a strategy. And so that's where my head went with this is thinking about how do we integrate this in on the day-to-day -day level and whether it's an individual parent or whether it's a department, you suddenly now know there's something out there um, that certainly, you know, could help and, and just making people aware of it. And that's why I thought this podcast was so important to make sure that people heard it. Because again, anytime you talk brain, is this a scam? Is this people just trying to make money? Is this whatever? But this is, this is founded in science and the ethos and the spirit of this product and this company and everything you've committed your entire career to, um, just points in this direction of, we have to make it better. And I got excited about that. Um, and I'm sure people too, as they're listening, um, are excited for what that could potentially mean. Now, I, I got to ask, you covered a lot of heavy stuff tonight. You, you went through the, everything from the moment of impact to the future of testing. Straight up, are sports going to be safe? Are we going to get to the point where, you know, every time someone bumps their head, we take them out? Or are sports going to have to fundamentally change? Obviously, the NFL has made a ton of changes in their rules, um, in order to make the game safer. What are your thoughts just with everything? I mean, it sounds like you love sports, so you're not saying everyone should just stop. Um, but there should be an intelligent approach towards this. And I'd love to kind of 
get your closing thoughts on kind of the future of this, of now knowing what we know, we can't say we didn't know, we don't know what concussions are. We know a lot. What are your thoughts about the ethics of sport moving forward? Look, I don't straight up. I don't regret a day. I laced up the skates, not a day. Um, the benefit from sport and from physical activity is so well known and so well established from social engagement to development of leadership skills, um, just to the benefits on physiological health and brain health of exercise itself. Um, and there isn't a day I can tell you when I'm not pulling up ESPN on the hour on my phone or watching sport. I don't care what it is, whether it's the French Open final uh, or the final round of the, of the Palmetto Open or it's NBA basketball or NFL football. I watch it all. I love sport. <clears throat> and actually, I think sport is going to be safer in the future because I think we're going to have so much capacity to know how to monitor and protect athletes. Because I tell, I tell young athletes, you know what? If you allow me to follow you more closely, I'm going to, I'm going to actually prolong your career rather than shorten it. I guarantee you. So, you know, I actually think sport is going to be safer because our diagnostic capabilities are going to be better. Our ability to track and monitor are going to be better. And our ability to physiologically actively intervene to protect the brain is going to be stronger. So I actually think we're going to actually improve the safety of sport. And thank goodness for that, uh, because the tangible and intangible benefits that come from participating in sport um, is, um, is, is unquestionable. So straight up, um, would, I, would I let my son play hockey? Absolutely. But would I ensure that he is biologically optimized and protected from a physiological health, brain health standpoint, and that they have a protocol in place to watch for, detect, observe, monitor, remove, return appropriately? Absolutely. And that can be done in 2021. And shame on us if we don't bring that to bear at all levels of sport, from youth all the way to the professional ranks. So that's my comment. Doc, thank you so much. Um, again, <clears throat> we covered a lot of different things tonight. If people want to get more information kind of on both your clinic, um, some of the research that you've mentioned, we'll obviously put links in the show notes. Um, what's the best way to kind of, uh, find out more information or to get in contact with your clinic? Maybe someone, um, is kind of lost or has suffered a concussion and they're out there listening. What's the best way to get a hold of you or to get, um, in contact with your group? Well, you know, we have a, <clears throat> a website, but we're, you know, we're new, right? We just launched what, maybe six, six, seven weeks ago. So we're just new. And so we're just sort of building everything out. But you can contact me through the website. Um, you can contact me directly. Um, and, uh, you know, having um, one of the things about having published a lot in the medical literature is that my email is readily available. Um, so you can find me. And I encourage people to, to find me because I just want to help people understand, uh, to have a a greater awareness of and a better understanding of the issues. And you know what? At the end of the day, we're just trying to protect people's brains and just trying to support 
in this way, from a nutritional standpoint or from a supplement standpoint, um, young athletes. And that was really the incentive here because I've seen the devastation and the damage that can be done. At the, I, I could care less if I made a dollar off of this. I could care less. I'm not looking at that. Listen, I've been in academic medicine for 31 years. My career, you know, I'm on the downslope of, of this career. And so as we started off, Thomas, I said, if uh, the reason I got into neurology and brain sciences was because of the complexity of the organ and of the lack of treatments that are out there for neurological diseases. That's changed considerably in my 31 years in this field, but it hasn't changed in this area. And so if I can make even a small but meaningful contribution to this, at the end of the day, I will have felt like I've, I've done everything I could and I've made, I've made a contribution, which is why I got into this in the first place. And when you go into something and you commit yourself to something, you have to be in at 110%. And so that's what this is all about. It is not, it, it is not about the money. And if all of this money, what, what I did initially, to be honest with you, is the first thing I did was establish a foundation. So I established a foundation. And one of my passions is traumatic brain injury, but in victims of domestic violence. One in four women in this country are victims of domestic violence, and over 90% of them are hit in their heads and suffer repetitive traumatic brain injuries. So I established a foundation <clears throat> to be able to support those women and men and children, as well as advance the science. Because we're only, we're only gonna be as good as, um, as the research and, and the knowledge that's generated from, from that research. So um, what we're going to do is support research in traumatic brain injury and support some of these women who are devastated by repetitive traumatic brain injury. So it's all about, and you know, this is cliche, but it, you know, when you say it's all about giving back, but it's all about not so much giving back, but making a difference. That's why we chose to go into medicine. And uh, in, my, in my last years in medicine and in the field of neurology, uh, we just want to make a difference. And I didn't commit 30 years of my career, 30 years of my life to trying to make a difference to cash out in the end. That's not what this is about. Well, you know, there you have it. I mean, we, we talked about the reason for this, this podcast is to really kind of help listeners go out there, be at the tip of the spear, not only for competitive, competitive advantage, but also for the safety of, you know, the players that we serve and, you know, the individuals that we work with and without question, um, I, I can't even begin to tell you how much I learned tonight. And, and if you're listening, you know, you can go check out the website, click on the links, um, get yourself uh, more information. As Doc mentioned, he's happy to help you. But again, I think this is a critical moment uh, in the history of sports. We get the word out there. And again, um, I can't thank you enough, Doc, for coming to the lab tonight and uh, hope to have you back on uh, in the future as we continue to watch this grow and, and your mission continue to uh, spread throughout the, uh, the world. So thank you, Doc, so much. appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thomas, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it.